Hello and welcome to Studio P3 for another installment of Explore the Symphony with Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler. I'm your host, Marjolaine Fournier. I'm assistant principal bass with the National Arts Center Orchestra. Today, uh, as part of our series on the Piano Concerto, we'll be talking about Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 4. Hello, Jean-Jacques. Hello, Marjolaine. How are you? Very well. I'm looking forward to diving into this uh, subject. We have discussed already uh, Concerto Number no. 3. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and yes. And here we're getting into uh, one of the major works by Beethoven, certainly. And uh, but Beethoven, Beethoven. Let's let's see where 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 all this is situated. Where why this is one of the major works by Beethoven. One one uh, why this is one of the corner works uh, within his production, his musical production. You know, Beethoven, 1770, 1827. He his life is part of the latter part of what we call enlightenment in the history of humanity. And what is enlightenment? Well, it is development of, of human conscious as individuals. So uh, what the Germans called at that time, because, you know, enlightenment was called Aufklärung, and they call it Selbstdenken, to, to think by yourself. This is very, very important. Reason, rationality, rationalism, you know, opens up to education, education of the individual, development of the individual. And how is this education done? It's essentially done at that time by art and in art. It is also literature, but also very much music. And so the development of uh, the human beings is seen through the development of music at that time. That's why every single symphony, every single work that has been created by Beethoven, Mozart first, but especially Beethoven afterwards, is a social event because society reflects itself within the evolution of the works by people that are the great creators. And they are the great creators. They're not simply anymore composers to to spend some time and to have some nice time and have some nice music being played in courts and things like that. It is, it is an existential feat. It is what, what they called at that time triumph of humanity through the development of culture. You see, the thought was at that time that the world is not given. It's a very important thing. The world is not given. And things are not static. It is, the world is an act to accomplish. And every single work by Beethoven is an act going forward. So that's how society reflects itself within the works of Beethoven. And the works of Beethoven will be the model for the century, two centuries at least to come. We're still in that part, the, that very essential transformation of society, which happens in the period between Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven. And that's why we still cling so much to those three great musicians. So 
that a time of optimism, time of going forward, as imperfect as reality and the world is, said the great philosopher Hegel, it is perfectible. So great moments of optimism and the works of by Beethoven are really works of optimism, works that dig into the human conscience, in the human soul, and that tell us what we are going to be going forward. Wonderful time. And you know, when one asks, and the one last word about that period, when one asks why uh, enlightenment is so important, Beethoven at the end of his life, and why the Ninth Symphony is so important, Beethoven at the end of his life recalls the great moments of enlightenment. The Ninth Symphony, in fact, is telling us, don't forget what our what a great moment this was in the development of humanity because it is already in the 1820s and the 1820s are recuperation by conservatism by the state that's putting its hands again on that kind of development but it won't take long of course before new revolutions will come and uh, and the world will transform itself continuously after that so this is Beethoven within his time and Beethoven as a model within his time. So music at that time, music, well, music starts to become the model under Haydn. Haydn is the first one to say, my um, music is the first music that can be understood by everybody. So within that period, within that period of Aufklärung, of enlightenment, you know, to there being a human being, uh, they called it sapere aude in Latin, of course, you know, or the uh, daring to be oneself through one's own mind. And well, in that period, we are the development of individualism, individualism, of egalitarianism, and also of responsibility. Now, that, 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 that period opens up to the universality, the questions that we're asking, everybody being equal. Yeah, this is the French Revolution. French Revolution is part of that. So everybody being equal and the music that we create, Haydn creates, is uh, a music that can be understood by everybody. That is one. Second thing, when Mozart comes, Mozart, through his piano concertos, his operas and in, in his quintets, essentially shows how the individual, how the individual measures himself with society. Society is the orchestra, the individual is the voice in the opera or the piano solo in the concertos. And I'm preparing, of course, the fourth piano concerto with you. Then comes Beethoven and he says, yes, Mozart showed us the individual, the play between the individual and society, and I'm going to show how the individual is going to direct himself create himself, create himself, and transform society. Well, oh, I, I have many questions. I'm, I'm letting you catch your breath beca because I want my mind to catch up with you also. So you're talking about the democratization of music. In a way, it's also the democratization of music. Now, But also the taking into hands of our own destiny. That's huge. 
That's yeah. huge. And this is happening where Beethoven is, but it's happening all over the world, all over it's Europe. It's all at this over time? Europe in different time periods because one country is more is more developed than the other, more developed in a general sense, you know. But you know, in Germany, because of the great artists that live there. It goes very fast forward. Politically, it is in France, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. But there is a uh, enlightenment in England. There is enlightenment in Russia at that time. In very different, very different periods at at ten years difference one from another. But they all go forward between the 1770s. Hey, <laughs> that is the birth date of Beethoven. Between the 1770s and about the 1790s, 1800s. And then it starts trickling down a little bit because there is the big battle, of course, political battle, essentially, between Napoleon, enlightenment on a horse, (laughs) Dixit Hegel. And then uh, we have, of course, the taking in hand a little bit later in 1815, 1820. And that's why the Ninth Symphony is so important to recall freedom and fraternity. Right. Will we avoid talking about Napoleon at all? That's we, done by the time uh, the fourth concerto comes. He's absolutely. dealt with Napoleon. Absolutely. It's all behind him. Uh, not very long. You know, the Third Symphony is barely dried out, <laughs> dried uh, right. on, 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 his, on, on paper. And uh, so it's not long before that, that the, the, the Third Symphony has been composed. And he still is very much torn between his allegiance to the thought process behind the French Revolution and being a successful composer, you know, trying to survive, getting some money in him. (laughs) Well, I was getting to that in the sense that democratization of music also happened while the musician then didn't necessarily write for only the courts, but wrote for people. And Mozart did this by writing concertos. So also what I'm noting is that the composer as performer of his own works, slowly he will move away from this. Well, the 19th century, uh, most of the composers are either conductors or pianists still, or uh, essentially pianists and organists. So most of the, the one is another still very much. Right. This is So not how do they make a living from playing engagements or from selling their music? I see, I've read some correspondence of Beethoven where he was selling left and selling right yeah. his music. He was trying to, to, to sell most of his work and he didn't get the money necessarily from playing, no. Right. No, no, no. But, and, and anyhow, we'll come to that in a few minutes, uh, that he will, be, he will be playing a soloist the last time. And the last time will be the fourth, fourth piano concerto, the very fa- the, uh, the specific fourth piano concerto, which we're talking about. But let me say something else. Let me say something else. Let's get, let's get to, to Beethoven's works as such. Between 1798 and 1802, 1798 and 1802, he, um, he transforms his style. So he's building his style. He's, he's, he's getting into what we will recognize very much, and many of the people will recognize, oh, this is Beethoven. You know, you hear a few notes and you say, ah, uh, this is the man from Bonn. And, um, and then from 1802 till 1807, after having transformed his style, he will transform music. He transforms the concerto, doesn't he? And he transforms very much the concerto because the you know the, the the expression that is behind the expressivity that is behind his language 
is becoming so much more profound, so much more uh, enthralling, um, uh, encompassing a whole world. And uh, we will see that essentially in the second movement of the fourth piano concerto, of course. We'll come back to that in a few seconds. So that period, 1802-1807, is a very important period. He he composes most of his <laughs> great works from the Third Symphony, the Eroica, on until the Seventh Symphony. So this it's all happening in that period. And then we come to uh, to the, the period of that fourth piano concerto. And what does he do? It's one of the great years of crea- creativity. He composes the fourth symphony, his violin concerto, which is not nothing, isn't it? I mean, huh? um, the Razumovsky quartets, <laughs> the Appassionata sonata, and the overture for his Leonor opera. There's, there is opera, there are string quartets, there is... Uh, sonata, there are sonatas, not only the Appassionata, by the way, but I'm simply giving the major works that were, and the best known works, a, not a great concerto for another instrument, the violin, which is also a very, it's, it's, a, it's a cornerstone in uh, composing uh, for the violin, of course, um, uh, the, uh, the violin concerto by Beethoven. Mozart's violin concertos are little things compared to this major undertaking. And then, of course, the Fourth Symphony. Now, and there's something I can't really understand. Beethoven, what's beautiful about his life is, well, beautiful and sad, is that he wrote down many things, uh, his conversations, and he wrote, he had a large correspondence also. But my understanding is that he took his musical ideas and he worked them very hard, very well for a long time. How could he produce so much music in five years with all that? How could he not? I, I, I don't understand. How can you produce that much if you work so hard at it? He was a hard worker. Mozart was a hard worker also. One opposes very often the, the facility, the easiness of Mozart and Beethoven's hard work. Well, I think these are both clichés. Uh-huh. They're both clichés. I do think Beethoven had a great facility for writing, on which he worked very hard because the construction is an extraordinary construction. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I was talking to a friend very recently, and that uh, the, uh, and that friend is, uh, about how uh, Moliere was uh, created all his different scenes very uh, with great precision. Beethoven does the same thing with his works, with his symphonies, with his concertos, with his string quartets. But even the smallest of ideas, he flips over and twists and turns. Well, some of those very small ideas are already in the the sketchbooks of the Eroica, of the fourth piano concerto. That's why I'm coming back to the Eroica. That's why I have not forgotten uh, Napoleon and Bonaparte. So there are little ideas there. In, in the, and that is 1804. And then you can find more l- notes of the, um, of the Ford Piano Concerto in his uh, um, opera, <laughs> in, uh, in Fidelio. Then you can find it, uh, uh, another few notes in his sketchbooks of the Fifth Symphony. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. He, his way of working was a... His, at the same time, a slow way of working because the, the work matured throughout the other works. 
Can you believe that? I mean, throughout the third symphony, the fifth, of course, written at the same time as the fourth symphony, the fifth symphony, and it's all there, little bits and pieces, and then he puts it together. What an intelligence. Eh? Yeah, it's, he is it's a metaphysical composer. Well, that means uh, yes. he, uh, it, 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 there is a thought process which is... Uh, which is much larger than a very straightforward thought process. It's a thought process about the thought process. <laughs> right. And, and now, and you said at the beginning, you set it in a very global perspective, where if his uh, medium hadn't been music, he would have been an intelligence to, to deal with also. Absolutely. He would have been a computer specialist in the 21st yeah. century. Well, I, I really want to dive into the concerto because ever since we spoke about the third concerto and the, and the way that uh, the concerto is in opposition with Mozart of the individual and the mass, I, I, the, I've discovered this in all music that I play from that era. And of course, the, well, the second movement of the fourth concerto is an extraordinary example of this, but even the way that he starts his concerto, where you're supposed to, in, uh, it used to be that you sit down and you listen to the introduction and you wait for the piano to come in. And then, and then the piano stops and you wait for him to come in again. This isn't Beethoven's way. No, well, you, you see, uh, that piano concerto, he will change, he will change the history of the piano concerto as such. It's enter, the, the history of the piano concerto enters a new phase with that fourth piano concerto. He has, he has tried it out with the third piano concerto, and then, of course, it will explode within the fifth piano concerto. He will succeed totally in that, in that titan titanesque, that, the major expression in the fifth piano concerto and that's why I very often think that's why he did not compose a sixth piano concerto because he was there he made he, it he, he made it he knew what he was saying but the fourth piano concerto is really the opening up and the transformation you know the third piano concerto we talked about that is one of somber passion and the fifth one is one of magnificence And between that, you have a piano concerto, which is of absolute, I call it, absolute balance of thought, of feeling, of beauty, of sensitivity. And that is distributed in the three movements. And you're absolutely right about that first movement, that beginning. You know, you have uh, five bars of a piano solo, which, of course, Mozart has done in this Genome piano mm. concerto already. There's lots of Mozart in this piano concerto. I'll come back to that in a few seconds. So with that piano, and you were absolutely right, with the piano, with a very calm phrase that starts the piano concerto, you know, it casts an unforgettable spell over the first movement and over the whole work. And it established the central role of the piano. Don't forget what I just said and of the individual. It's there. He got it. And it's the centerpiece. So after that, there are three minutes without the piano. <laughs> and then the violins come in and it flows forward with a very controlled energy uh, until the coda, until the, uh, the cadenza. And uh, Beethoven himself 
prepare two versions of that cadenza um, in which he doesn't look for brio. He doesn't look for brio, but he, he continues uh, gathering the energy and preparing the final fortissimo. It is such an extraordinary piano concerto that most of the great pianists of the 19th century and of the 20th century have created, have felt the need also to create their own cadenzas. And I, I looked this up. Brahms wrote one. Clara Schumann uh, uh, composed one. And uh, in, in the 20th century, the great German pianist Wilhelm Kempf composed also a, a cadenza for, for that fourth piano concerto. And then, of course, uh, a composer who is very close to my heart, um, which was a composer who died in the concentration camps, Victor Ullmann, in the concentration camps, composed a cadenza for the fourth piano concerto, which was played in the concentration camp of Theresien. So, that is the first movement. And then, then we get into the second movement. You know, and we have an andante, and an andante of 72 bars. And, and there are all kinds of stories about that, about that second movement. And, and, you know, the, the people have compared it to Orpheus um, uh, in its confrontation with the shadows of, uh, you know, the bowels of the world. Is uh, there a need, though? Is uh, there a need to no put need pictures whatsoever. to that? It is a, liter a literal It is a literal dialogue between the piano and the strings of the orchestra. Now, if you listen to this second movement, there's a dotted rhythms, but the dotted, slow dotted. That's the orchestra. And then the piano answers very peacefully. So the dialogue, it's not that it's um, the orchestra is saying one thing. The piano is answering peace let's that, let's that is it is peaceful of course it is a second movement it is an andante it is a slow movement it is an internal movement but the, in the first part there are two parts of that uh, that second movement of the slow movement and in the first part it's the orchestra that is running running the the, the energy and the piano is answering very soft Um, uh, very subdued, uh, uh, una corda pedal, pedal, you know, very softening pedal to, throughout throughout the movements, and then by the middle, there is um, an, uh, a, a, a change of situation, total change of situation, where the uh, piano takes over and the the, the strings get into the background and are reduced to pizzicato touches and just die out and the piano the piano takes over the orchestra disappears within a pianissimo and it show and now this is a dramatic scene this is a dramatic scene this is an opera scene and with these strings the strings solo um, um, with the piano as the operatic soloist and the and the and the, the orchestra uh, as the musical drama behind it it is exactly what you find in mozart's in some of excerpts of mozart's late italian operas i call the italian operas the operas that were composed with the on an italian text uh, in uh, in uh, Uh, the Marriage of Figaro, for example, Barberina's uh, very short excerpt in the last act, the Cavatina of the Nozze di Figaro, is 
exactly on that same kind of atmosphere, operatic atmosphere. atmosphere. Very subdued, That's a good but word. at the same time, yes. at the same time, you get very, very intense uh, sensitivity and very intense express expression. Same thing, you know. There are, there are all kinds of other elements within operas which I could could go, but we, let's not get too far, dig too far into that. And then after that, after this extraordinary dreamlike, but at the same time very profound second movement, you have, uh, you know, the the uh, brilliant, uh, very um, very strong and very 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 um, in uh, you know. Brilliant <laughs> brio last movement, which ends the the that that wonderful uh, wonderful concerto. I I understand that it's been said that if you want to get big applause and bravos, you play Tchaikovsky. If you want some meat, if you want to really dig into a piece, you play Beethoven's Fourth Concerto. Also, I I was thinking, you know, after Beethoven's uh, concertos and his violin concerto. Composers didn't go for 20 concertos. They played, they wrote one, nope. two maybe. Brahms, two. Two, Schumann, that's it. one. And there was a f almost a fear of touching the form after Beethoven yeah. touched he, it. He establishes essentially the form for about 150 years. From the symphony until Shostakovich. And uh, for the piano concertos, until today, I've I recently heard uh, a new piano concerto of a very comp very uh, contemporary composer, uh, which was in three movements. <laughs> and there you go, <laughs> fast, slow, fast. Uh, uh, we say to each other, uh, you know, we say to one one says to oneself, um, you know, he, he's still there. Yeah. There's there's the other thing that he he does in the third concerto uh, if we want to talk about the writing again but that always has mystified me uh, but it's his choice of finishing the cadenza without uh, with an elision you know where the cadenza doesn't really finish but just goes right into the music as if the, there is a real dialogue there is a real dialogue and the third movement uh, continues the second movement also so there is continuity, and that Beethoven has done very often. He did it in his Fifth Symphony, right? Between the third and the fourth movement, he does it with that piano concerto also. That that second movement, which is, which is a it, it's a it's a utopian movement. That second movement, and that utopian movement gets into a triumphal allegro, but it is still a very poetic triumph. Well, Jean-Jacques, again, you know, there's so many clichés about Beethoven. And I don't think once we spoke about the fact that he became deaf and it was very tragic in his life. Of course, it would be tragic for a, a non-musician. And again, uh, without going into the clichés, you've made me think that I don't know Beethoven at all. Even though the first symphony I ever played was a Beethoven symphony, you know. Ah, you We've know Beethoven very well. Well, you know, but, but no, and, and, it, no. and it's and 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 speaking about it is not a cliché that Beethoven was the soloist of at the premiere of this work. And it was the last time he played as a soloist because, right. you know, for uh, he's now 35 years old, I think. And at 27, he knew he was was getting deaf. And, you know, and and that's it. He won't be he won't create himself the fifth piano concerto. Right. Well, what I was 
uh, heading towards was to say that you always make me discover things. I'm very happy to have had the conversation with you, Jean-Jacques. Thank you once again. You're very welcome. That's all for this edition of Explore the Symphony. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacpodcasts at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcast.ca. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. Check out our sister podcast, the NACOcast with Chris Millard, our principal bassoon. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Explore the Symphony. The musical excerpts you heard in this podcast are used with the permission of Naxos of Canada. Until next time, this is Marjolaine Fournier for Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler and the new media team at the NAC saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.